Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Larry Fitzgerald, who played 17 seasons for the Arizona Cardinals and is widely regarded as one of the best wide receivers to ever play the game. He's also an incredible philanthropist, investor, and businessman. It's funny, when we think about leadership, often what comes to mind for us is the person who's up in front of the crowd, who's leading the meeting, calling the huddle, giving the big speech. But when you listen to Larry Fitzgerald, you remember, not all leaders are flashy and vocal and upfront. Our best leaders are often the ones who just quietly go about their work with excellence. And they earn their role as a leader by setting an example that other people just want to follow. In this conversation, we talk about how Larry grew up, how he prepares for games, how he is navigating social justice issues, and now how he's developing as a businessman. And in every scenario, Larry just quietly exerts so much influence for good on the people around him. It's the perfect reminder that great leaders lead by example. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Larry Fitzgerald. Well, everyone has their own style and their own way of leading. And today's guest, Larry Fitzgerald, is just one of those quiet, unassuming leaders who leads by example. Larry's taken his platform as a Hall of Fame NFL receiver to make a real difference, not only on the field, but in the communities he serves. Larry, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Glad to be with you, Mr. Novak. You know, speaking of examples, you know, I, I learned that you delivered meals to Banner Medical Healthcare workers in Phoenix during the height of the pandemic. Tell us about that experience. Well, there's so many women and men who put their lives on the line during this pandemic to, to try to serve people who are ill and, and fighting for their lives. And um, we have a restaurant in Phoenix, and we wanted to do our part to serve our community there. Um, so we brought meals to hospitals. We brought meals to frontline workers who uh, were at home with their families. And, you know, we wanted to try to do something nice, you know, for the people who, um, you know, are, are going out of their way, staying away from their families, doing unthinkable things to to keep our, our community safe. And, you know, that was the precipice behind it. Yeah, well, you've got now you got training camp ready to open up. Do you think the NFL's doing everything it should do for to get ready for coronavirus? Well, you know, the thing that's difficult um, is we really just don't know a lot. You know, early on it was the heat was going to kill, you know, the virus and the numbers would go down and, um, you know, you know how everybody's immune system is affected differently. I mean, like, there's so many things we just don't understand and know about it. And um, I'm, I'm hopefully optimistic that, you know, we'll be able to play the season and be able to get through it without a hitch. I think everybody's watching the NBA and the Major League Baseball and, and, and the NHL to kind of pick up on tidbits we can do to, you know, make our system more efficient, make sure people are, are, are healthy and we're doing everything that we can to protect the, the environment and people watching the game. Because, I mean, in reality, people want sports. They want to be able to, to sit at home on Saturdays and Sundays and watch their football. You know, it's kind of a, 
America's favorite pastime, and, yeah. and we want to get out there and play. <laughs> no question. You know, yeah. and this is your last year, Larry. And uh, as coronavirus, you look great physically. Obviously, you always do. But just what about the mental aspect of coronavirus? Do you think it's going to affect the players? Well, I think the thing that affects you is just the uncertainty. I mean, when you go into a season normally, you know, there's there's nobody wondering, do you think we're going to be able to play this season? Are we going to be able to practice together with 22 guys in the field? Are we going to be able to sit in meeting rooms with 90 guys and address team issues and policies and things of that nature? So all of those things kind of weigh on your mind. Um, normally, when you go into training camp, it's just pure excitement. You're looking forward <laughs> to getting back to work, being around your teammates, working on one common goal of winning the championship. This year is so different. There's so many things, you know, we have older coaches and we want to make sure this these guys are safe. And, you know, I mean, there's just so many things you're, you're thinking about and concerned about. And you, you said this is going to be my last year. So like, I don't know that for a fact. You know, I, I'm still kind of waiting to see. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. I never I never like to say anything's last. You know, I don't like to have that mindset. Uh, <laughs> well, you, yeah. you know, I know all of football hopes you stick around for a long time. <laughs> you can certainly do it. There's no question about that. You know. Larry, I also understand you just went on the board of directors for Dick Sporting Goods. You know, I, I know that management team, you know, Ed Stack, Lauren Hobart, just fantastic mm-hmm. people. What do you hope to bring to the party there? Well, it's a fabulous company. It's already really well run. Um, the upper management, Ed Stack, and his leadership group have done a fantastic job thus far leading the company through through so much uncertainty like many um, others. And retail has been hit primarily hard because, you know, brick and mortar people just aren't getting out into the stores, but they've really done a great job to, uh, you know, to lead and find ways to to be able to be productive and stay relevant in, in the current market. And, you know, I, I, being a sportsman, I feel like I have a great understanding of, of sports um, and equipment that's necessary for people to go out there and do their jobs and, and compete at a high level. And I think uh, that I'll be able to offer a lot, but I'll also be able to, to bring um, some enthusiasm, some youth, and some different set of eyes to the company. But I'm there to learn, and I have a lot of wonderful people that I can learn from there. You've done extensive work with them, and Mr. Stack and this group are are interested in, in, in growing and getting better. And that's why guys like yourself come in and talk to the leadership team so they can improve uh, holistically on a, uh, and improve because you have, to, you have to find ways to continue to change and develop um, new alternatives to compete in an in a always changing environment. Well, you're, they're lucky to have you. You'll do a great job oh, for them. You. you know, uh, I want to hear about how you grew up. I know you grew up in Minneapolis, but what brought you and your family to Minneapolis? So my mom and dad, both their families, my mom uh, was born in New Orleans and her family moved up to Chicago and my dad's family's from Natchez, Mississippi, and they moved up to Chicago from there. Um, My mom and dad ended up meeting in high school. Um, They dated in high school and dated through college. My mom went to DePaul, my dad went to Indiana State. And once they graduated from college, they ended up getting married in 78 and uh, they moved to Minneapolis. And uh, that's where my brother and I were born. We had a fantastic upbringing, um, just a regular old middle-class family. You know, we weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, we always had clothes on our backs and a hot meal in our belly. Um, went to good schools. My parents made a lot of sacrifices for us to be able to go get a private education. And, uh, you know, it, it was really good for my brother and I. We ended up both getting scholarships to go to college and play football. And, uh, you know, it was it was great. My dad's a journalist in Twin Cities area, has been doing it for 40-plus years, and my mom was, before she passed away, was in the nonprofit business. Um, and, you know, it was a really unique upbringing, you know. So with my dad, we would grow up and be around great athletes, Michael Jordan, Kirby Puckett, Kevin Garnett, you name it. 
And then on the on the on my mother's side, we would be around passing out pamphlets for people to, you know, learn more about HIV and AIDS and, and cancer. And and so it was a it was a really great um, upbringing, and it was full of excitement and um, great learning experiences. You know, Larry, I, I loved your New York Times op-ed about uh, Minneapolis not being the hometown you grew up in, uh, and your plea for racial justice after the George, you know, tragic George Floyd uh, incident that happened in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. You know. Tell us about that article and why you wrote it and how you went through the process of, of writing. Like it's very thoughtful. Well, I, like most Americans, were, were were really appalled by what I witnessed that, through the tape and um, the actions of, uh, you know, that police officer who, who kneeled on his neck um, for that time. And, you know, being a Minneapolis native, you know, you, you just have a, a wide array of emotions. Um, you know, I was... I was shocked, you know, I was embarrassed, you know, I was upset, um, you know, I, I, I was looking for justice, um, you know, I, you go through this this weird emotional swing and, you know, I wanted to get back home and kind of get the pulse of the land. I wanted to go talk to some city councilmen. I wanted to talk to the police officers that I knew in the city. I wanted to talk to the clergy. Um, you know, I wanted to be able to get to speak to some people that, you know, were on the grounds and really... Um, could affect change. And once I was able to do that and take my notes, um, you know, I could accurately, accurately depict what I was truly feeling. And, and you know, that's what I did. Um, and I wanted to take my time. I didn't want it to be a, a, a knee-jerk reaction. You know, I didn't want to be one of the folks that picks up the phone and sends out a tweet without thinking it through. And uh, the New York Times gave me a great opportunity to do that. And I'm very privileged that I was able to write it. And, you know, I, I got, you know, different, perspectives from different people. You know, some people thought I was too soft on the police or I wasn't, um, you know, adamant enough about what I felt should be done. And, you know, so it was really what I was hoping for. It got conversation started. And that's what I think we need to do um, because it's impossible for a black man to understand what it's like to be a white man uh, or a white woman. And it's impossible for a white person to understand what it's like to be an African-American or or a Latino or, or a Jewish person. I mean, these are things that only you can understand by getting to know the people um, in, in our communities and actually having those tough conversations that might be a little uneasy. Yeah, you really talked about the importance of listening. Yeah, yeah. And, and for anybody to understand anything, you have to listen. There's no way, you know, if, if I was, uh, you know, trying to understand about, you know, restaurants and, you know, learn about, you know, young brand. If I didn't understand, the only way for me to understand would be able to have dialogue with you and say, Mr. Novak, hey, can you teach me this? Can you help me understand that? And that's conversation that we all need to have. It doesn't matter what the subject matter is, but we just need to do a better job of communicating with each other. I agree 100%. You know, and, and Larry, you know, I understand that you and your son actually participated in the protests mm-hmm. uh, up in Minneapolis. How old is your son and what was that like for you? Devin is 12 years old. He's going into seventh grade uh, this year. And I was really, really, um, you know, I didn't really push the facts on him. Obviously, he's he's on Instagram and all these different media platforms. And, he, you know, he sees what goes on. He, he he hears it. And what I really liked is he was curious about it. He wanted to know that why, why would that police officer do that? And how was that possible in the United States of America when the police are here to, to protect us, right? And, and I said, Devin, you can't judge all police by this one incident. You know, this is the actions of one man. This is not the entire police force. This is one, one person who, who did something that he was not coached or, 
to do. And it's, he took it upon his own self to do these things. And I think it's important that we understand that. And also, he wanted to go down and, and see the site where it happened. He wanted to feel the energy. He wanted to go out and, and do the peaceful protests in March. And so, you know, as a father, I was really, really happy that um, he was so socially conscientious about what was going on. And not only that, but he wanted to he wanted to see with his own eyes and experience it. And so, you know, I like to I like to think that I, we're on the right track. Sounds like it. Very smart, smart young man yeah. for that, uh, that 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 age. That's yeah. that's fantastic. You know, what's your advice to any any one of us who who, who might want to get involved in social issues? Well, I would say you find the cause that that is near and dear to your heart. Um, find companies and organizations that support those endeavors that you that you want to be involved in. And, you know, when I was young, I didn't jump right into it. I, I know my mother was involved in it, but I wanted to watch other guys like Emmett Smith, who who has already had a non-for-profit and was doing great things in the community and learn from people who, before me, figure out the mistakes they made, ask the right questions. And this way, I'll be able to do what I'm doing more streamlined and be able to uh, avoid some of the pitfalls that that happened. So that's kind of what my approach was. I think everybody has a a responsibility uh, to serve others. I just think that is that's what we all should be doing. Um, you know, our gift to the world is is, is what we do for for our, our fellow man, and it doesn't matter what the race or the religion. You know, it's just doing the right thing. And if we all have that simple mindset, you know, our world will be a much better place. The balance of elite athletes and mm-hmm. leaders with their having, you know, self-confidence and that you got to have and balancing that with humility. Mm-hmm. How do you do it, big guy? Well, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. Uh, when you're in a leadership position, you know, when you're running a major company and everybody's telling you, you know, how good you are or, and, you know, it, the stock price is this or, you know, you have a 100-yard game and, you know, you feel like you're on top of the world. It's very difficult to be able to manage those emotions. But you have to understand that as, as a leader um, and a leader, not only in your building and your organization, but in your in your community, you have a responsibility to be able to do things the right way because there's there's people, younger employees that are looking at you for, man, I wonder how David's going to respond to this or, you know, is Fitz going to, you know, change the way he does a business based on his results at work. And, and you have to always be aware of that. So it's a, it's a delicate balance and one that as I've gotten older, I've done a better job of managing. Um, it, it, it was it was tough initially uh, for me, but, you know, as I started to, to get a little older, you know, it, it became a little bit easier because I understood what I understood more about myself. You know, when you're 22 years old and you're first having your, your little bit of success, got a little bit of money in your pocket, it's, it's tough to manage. But at 36 now with with three young kids and, um, you know, seeing that the hourglass turned over on me from a professional standpoint and that there's different things in life for me to pursue you have to humble yourself to be able to, you know, make sure you're ready for those changes. Now, when did you first realize that you wanted to become an NFL player? And, and did you have a leader early on that really helped you realize that you had the potential to do just that? Well, my dad had a radio show with Dennis Green. He was the Minnesota Vikings coach there. And it gave me the opportunity to become a ball boy. And I think that that experience in, a, in itself really was an eye-opener for me because I think every kid kind of has aspirations to be a professional athlete. But you only get a chance to see that professional athlete perform in their arena. You get to see them on the basketball court, on the baseball diamond, on the football field. But but what they do when they're not playing is really what separates them f- from being pedestrian, being good, or being great. And the great players always did more than what, what they were required to do. 
And I think that's uh, applicable to anything that you do in life. And it really was kind of my uh, my aha moment as a youngster to be able to see that work ethic. Yeah, I, I know you went to Valley Forge Military Academy before you went to the University of Pittsburgh. Why'd you go there and what was the biggest leadership lesson you learned there? Well, I was pretty immature, you know, when I was 16 years old. Um, I didn't have the the academic prowess that I needed to be successful in, in college. And so I really wasn't ready to go to college. And so my parents decided that Valley Ford Military Academy was going to be the right move for me. So I spent a year and a half there. And it's one of those places that I hated from the day I got there to the day I left. But the people that I met there, the leadership, um, uh, the discipline I, w- I got there from not only the other students, but the faculty there, it was so, so important. It was a monumental um, year and a half for me. And I went in as an immature child and left as a, as a man, um, ready to be able to go and, and focus and be able to, um, you know, go chase my dream in college. I mean, I remember my first semester in college, I, I had a 3.4 GPA. I was able to uh, focus on my academics, focus on my, my studies and have a social life all at the same time. And I got that discipline and understanding from my experiences at Valley Forge. And uh, you know, there's no way I would be here if it, if it wasn't for that year and a half there. You know, you called me from the very beginning. You called me Mr. Novak. I've heard you be around other people and if they're older than you. You call them Mr. You know, and I've told you, don't call me Mr. <laughs> call me David. But you insist on doing that. What What is it that makes you take that approach because you you really do show a lot of respect to a lot of people and some people like me who don't deserve it. <laughs> no, my, my parents for, I mean, I have friends, my mom and dad friends. I never even knew their first name. They were just Mr. or Mrs. or aunt or uncle. Like I, I it's just always a, a respect factor that you have to, that you have to show um, in uh and also the military background, I have a lot of family that's in the army. Uh, my grandfather served and received a Purple Heart for his service in, in, in Korea. And, and so it, I always just have a, a great respect for the people that have come before me and, and kind of blazed the trail, made my, made my journey a little easier. Well, it's, it's always interesting to hear that because I think everyone that meets you respects you so much. Now, when you came into the NFL, you were the youngest player on the team and also the youngest player in the league. What advice can you give to people on how to make the best possible start when you're just getting started and you're working with uh, more experienced and older people? I think the first thing I I, I did is I just came in and I, I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say much to anybody. And I, I identified pretty quickly who the guys I should be following. I think as young people, you have to be able to see qualities that great leaders possess. And you have to be able to identify those and you watch them. And my guy was Emmitt Smith. Emmitt Smith is the all-time leading rusher in the National Football League history. And he was just completing his 16th season with my first year. So everything Emmitt did from the food that he ate, the way he dressed, the way he took notes, the way he treated people, um, how he looked men in their eyes when he was talking to them, how he gave you a firm handshake, how he led sometimes getting on guys and how he put his arms around other guys. He had innate ability to be able to get the best out of people. And I just watched him for a whole year and I emulated everything he did. And, uh, you know, he was a great, great leader for me, um, you know, as a 20-year-old coming into the league, how to manage my money, how to treat his wife, how to be with his children. Um, you know, he invited me over for Thanksgiving meal when I didn't have any family. Like all of these things, I just took these mental notes of how he conducted himself and I just wanted to pattern myself after, after you know, essentially the greatest running back to ever play. And uh, so that was a tremendous example. And I think anybody who's getting in, I don't care if it's an entry-level position at a, at a company. I mean, just there's people that you know 
they take pride in what they do. They, they're punctual. They, um, they just execute to a higher level than everybody else. And he's one of those guys that was a great leader for me. You know, Emmett Smith, if I recall, he won Dancing with Stars. Yeah. You emulated what he did. Is that in your future, no, Larry? No, no, no. I got, I, got I got two left feet, Mr. Novak. I, I haven't danced since my high school prom, and I, I'm okay with that. Well, now, Larry, the, now the tables have been turned, and you're one of the oldest players on the team. You know, and so how do you look at your leadership obligation to a rookie like uh, Kyler Murray? Well, I think it's a great uh, opportunity for me to help my organization um, and help my team because, um, you know, guys like Kyler, they're immensely talented, um, but they just don't know the ropes yet. And the sooner and faster they can learn the ropes and learn how to study and be professionals and do um, what's expected of them as, as leaders on that team, the faster our team will be better. Um, and so I think that's my job now. And I really relish the position that I'm in, being able to have that opportunity to um, impress upon these young people the importance of, you know, just being good citizens in the community, uh, representing themselves and their families, studying, taking care of their bodies, and just always doing the right thing when nobody's looking. You've stayed on the same team, and you've actually caught, I, I read this, you've caught touchdown passes from 12 different quarterbacks, which is a record in and of itself. What learnings can you share on how to adjust to new teammates and, and new leaders? Because that happens in business all the time. You have somebody come in that you're now getting different plays called for you. Well, I think I've, I've kind of become accustomed to it. I've had like nine position coaches and eight different coordinators and almost 20 different quarterbacks over my career. And I think it's a real skill to be able to get to know somebody pretty quickly um, understand their personality, the things that they like, they, they dislike, and be able to work with different people. It doesn't matter what their color or their skin is, what religion, what background they come from. You know, I think we all can work for one common goal if, if that is what we desire. And um, I wouldn't write my script any different. I think that I've learned a lot about myself over the last uh, 16, 17 years, having to deal with so many different changes. And, um, you know, and I, and I think it's part of me that I really um, actually have come to appreciate. Have you thought about the process you use to make that happen? Yeah, just, I'm not a complainer, right? So I think that's one thing I see a lot of the young guys do. They, they're always, they want instantaneous success. Like you, you just walk in the door and you can just be the best. Not how, that's not how it is. You know, a building is not built overnight. You know, you have to take certain steps every single day to be able to be great. And um, great is something that is fleeting. You know, you have to chase it every single day when you're hurt and you're sore and you're tired. Um, and and I really respect and admire that process. You know, the guys who have come before me, um, great business leaders. I mean, it's it's a it's it's painful sometimes. It's it's uh, it's tough, you know, when things are not going your way. But you learn about about yourself when you're able to push through and come out on the other side. You know, you've you've been around a, a lot of coaches. What what do you think it takes to be a good coach in, in in sports and business? Well, I think the biggest thing is you have to you have to be honest. I think people can see through um, nonsense, and if you're trying to mislead people, you have to be honest. You have to have a, a clear plan. There has to be guidelines and, and regulations in place. There has to be order. Um, it can't be a free-for-all. There has to be direction. You have to be able to be stern enough to be able to reprimand people who are not towing the line. Um, and, but you also have to be compassionate about uh, the things that are going on in people's lives. Somebody might be going through a divorce or in a custody battle with their kids. You have to be compassionate. And to be compassionate, you have to know the people that you're around. You have to invest in them. You have to let them know that you care. Um, and people don't they don't understand um, 
how important it is to to be able to make that commitment to individuals and um, and make relationships deeper than the surface. Would you ever consider being a head coach yourself in your future life? And if so, is there a particular coach that you'd try to emulate? Well, I've had a, a number of really, really good coaches, and it would be tough for me to pick out one guy that I would say I, I would like to emulate um, because they're also unique. But effective in their own way. And for me, I don't think I could ever do it. It's just they require so many hours. I mean, those guys are in the building at 5.45, 6 o'clock in the morning. They don't leave until 10, 11 o'clock. I mean, they don't see their kids and their wives, you know, but a couple times a week. I mean, it's a, it's a really tough life. Um, and you're dealing with some head cases sometimes, you know, guys who are not necessarily intrinsically motivated to to get better on a daily basis and have a lot of distractions off the field. And so it's not as easy as you would imagine, um, you know, having to deal with 22, 23, 24, 25-year-olds, you know, guys that are millionaires and don't like to be told what to do on a daily basis. It's not, <laughs> it wouldn't be the easiest job. <laughs> now, you and Anquan Bolton were the most productive tandem of receivers ever in the NFL to play on the same team. You both caught over 100 passes in, in 2005. And again, that's on the same team. Do you have a story you can share with us on how you guys actually made it work and what you learned from each other? I could see how you could both want the ball mm -hmm. all the time, even more than those 100 passes. Oh, yeah. I mean, and when I first got there, I was 20 years old. Anquan, the year before, was the NFL rookie the year. He had caught 100 passes and, and 1,310 touchdowns the year before I got there. So I knew that if I wanted to play that – he was the guy that uh, everybody was looking to. And so, like I said, I kept my mouth shut. I just worked every single day to, to get better and improve on my craft. And the best thing that could have happened to me is I went to a team that had a guy who was great with me because it, it, it pushed me. I was able to push him. And the other thing about him is uh, he was highly, highly competitive. And he was an emotional um, leader, the toughest guy I've ever played with. Uh, I remember a story um, in 2007 where he he actually had his jaw broken, uh, was knocked completely unconscious. When I got to him, there was blood come out of his ears, blood come out of his mouth, blood come out of his nose. He was motionless. And I remember him putting him on the, on the stretcher and, and taking him back to the locker room. And two weeks later, after 20 screws in his face, he was back out there playing football and caught two touchdowns against the Carolina Panthers and ran a, ran a linebacker over to score a touchdown. And I just said, man, this is not human. I mean, this guy is one of the toughest guys I've ever been around and one of the most compassionate and giving individuals. Also, he was a he was an NFL uh, Walter Payton Man of the Year winner, you know, a few years back. And so he just did everything the right way. And being able to have a, a leader that was around my age that, that I could emulate and, and learn from and also compete with, really kind of sharpened my tools also. And so, you know, I, I, I was very blessed to be able to play with Anquan for um, the, the seven years that we played together. And, um, you know, it was it was a phenomenal relationship when we had it there. Did you have a real collaborative relationship with him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we're still extremely close to this day. He has an event right here in, in Palm Beach that, uh, that I go to every year that, that serves his community of Pahokee where he grew up. Yeah, it's probably about a 60 miles to, to the west of here. And, uh, you know, what he does in that community, what he continues to do for just South Florida area is, is really respectable. And, um, you know, we're pretty like-minded in terms of our service and, and, uh, and what's important to us in this world. Good. You know, you played for Kurt Warner as your quarterback, and I understand he really challenged you to be great. Uh, how so and what did you learn from him as a leader? Kurt was tough on me. Um, when, when he got here my second year, I was 21 years old. Um, you know, I was very talented. And 
Kurt told me when he got here, I know this is what you're used to playing and guys just throwing the ball up to you and you can go make a play. Well, I don't play football like that. I play precise football. You need to be where I need you to be at all times. You need to be accountable. I don't want any deviation from the routes. You know, I just, if it's supposed to be a five-step, I want it to be five-step. I don't want a seven. I don't want it three. I need it to be precise. And this is the way Isaac Bruce was doing it. This is the way Torrey Holt was doing it when I was in St. Louis. And this is the way I need you to do it. And so he really challenged me to refine my, my skill set. You know, I was getting by on just raw athleticism. I was bigger, faster, and stronger. I could jump higher than most of the guys I was competing against. And he really wanted me to be proficient at route running. And without Kurt, there's no way I would have taken that next step because he challenged me every single day. Yeah, that was a great catch, Larry, but the route was porous. You could improve on the on the top of that break and you'd have been able to catch that ball and run as opposed to getting tackled on it. So he was always pushing me and harping on me about the little things um, to, to improve. And I used to find it really annoying when I was young, but you know, looking back, it was the best thing that I could ever had that somebody cared enough about me to, to not let me just be good because he saw greatness in me. You know, it doesn't matter what vocation you're in. Uh, being an avid learner is a trait of all the greats. Yes, sir. How do you stay on top of your game and how do you keep learning? Well, I mean, I, I'm always picking the minds of, of of great players, you know, Jerry Rice and Michael Irvin and um, James Lofton and some of the greats. I'm always in contact with these guys. Uh, hey, can you watch this and tell me what you think about this? And where can I improve on on this? And and I'm always trying to get feedback. And and then I go to you know guys that I really admire in business and I talk to them about things that made them successful. Um, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to learn. Um, the mind is uh, it's a muscle and it gets stronger and stronger the more you utilize it and the more you information you feed it. And I'm I'm, I'm just a I'm a student of life. I would say I. I love to, to be able to learn and about new cultures and, and people and, and things that make, uh, you know, individuals great and successful. And that's, that's really what makes me go. You know, the, the quarterback is, is generally regarded as the team leader or the CEO in football. Mm -hmm. How do you lead when you're in a skill position, which is similar to being a functional leader in a business, like running marketing or running mm -hmm. HR and you report into the CEO. And I know you didn't report to the quarterback, but you're in a skill position. The quarterback's generally the acknowledged leader. How did you see your, your role in that skill position? Well, the thing I think is biggest difference between um, like corporate and athletics is sports is a meritocracy. The leader doesn't need to be spoken about, doesn't need to be anointed. People will follow who they feel should be followed. And guys have always gravitated to me because, you know, the way I work, the way I carry myself, the, how I go about my business, I never had to give the rah-rah speech or ask to be voted for a captain. Naturally, you know, when you're out there working and you see, well, that, that guy's working a little bit harder than everybody else. He's he's doing this a little bit different. He's going the extra mile here. Man, he really focuses. He takes notes in there. And and they don't ever never have to be spoken about, never talked about. You just start seeing guys doing the things that you're doing and eating the things that you're eating and dressing the way you're dressing. It's just, um, I've noticed that in sports and, you know, it's something that um, that is unique in our game uh, in athletics because, you know, a lot of it has never even spoken about. In 2011, Larry, you, you signed an eight-year, $120 million contract. You became the fifth highest player in the, in the league. When you get that kind of money and it's locked in, you know, how do you keep from getting complacent? And do you have any tricks that you've used to really stay hungry? Well, I think one of the best things about me and, and probably will be one of the worst things about me when I'm done playing football is I always look at myself as a project. You know, I could go out and play 
and catch 10 passes for 250 yards and three touchdowns. And I'll look at the tape and I'll say, man, I could have got better here. I was really bad in this block and I could have broke that tackle. All, all I ever see in myself is, is, is weaknesses and mistakes. And that's all. I, I never, I never really take any joy from the, the accomplishments. If that makes sense to you. Um, I'm always constantly trying to improve the things that I know I can get better at. And, um, you know, it's a it's a good thing because it always keeps me hungry, no matter what. But also, when I'm having success, I really can't like bask in it. I can't really take a lot of joy in it because I'm always in pursuit. That's that's a tough thing, you know, not it, to be able is. to take joy. Yeah, I, it is. It is. Um, and I've gotten better. And like as my children get older, I, I take a lot of joy in seeing them do well. Right. So, so the joy is kind of transferred because I I for some reason can't ever take joy in the things that I do. Now I can. I can take joy in, in the successes. My, my son comes home with a hundred percent on on his spelling test, or you know, he's done something really good in math, or had a wonderful game. You know, and I and I, I can feel, I can feel proud. You know, it makes me it makes me happy. So um, I I do get it, but it just doesn't usually come from myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in business, we all have to get up for big events, mm-hmm. big situations, big moments where you got to bring your A game. And you you had the most postseason games with over 150 yards, and you had a 67-yard touchdown pass in, in the uh, Super Bowl. Can you tell us a, a story of how you personally get up for the big moments, the big games? Because you you have a great track record for doing that. Well, Mr. Novak, honestly, the bigger the moment, the more pressure in the game, I think the quieter it becomes for me. You know, I, I when I'm playing and I'm running, I don't hear the crowd. I mean, literally, when the ball's in the air, I feel like it's in slow motion. Everything is just moving slower. And then when I catch it, everything speeds up. I don't. I have an ability to be able to to slow the moment down, if that makes sense to you. And um, I've heard other guys, you know, reading, you know, about Magic Johnson and and Michael Jordan and Derek Jeters and Wayne Gretzky, the guys who Reggie Jackson. I was just talking to a couple of weeks ago. There's certain guys who are able to be in that moment. How do you do it though? How, did it's, you not have- something, it's not something I've ever worked on or something I've trained myself for. I think it's just an, it's an innate ability. That- so if you're telling you, if you're going in the Super Bowl and you've got your, these younger, younger players, mm-hmm. what advice would you give them on, on how to get ready for that big game? Well, just every single day staying in the moment. You can't worry on Monday and you're playing on Sunday. You can't worry about Sunday because you can't be effective on Sunday if you don't take care of Monday. And so every single day, I'm just staying completely in the moment. I'm being the best Larry Fitzgerald on Monday. I'll be the best Larry Fitzgerald on Tuesday. I'll be the best Larry Fitzgerald on Wednesday. And if I'm doing that every single day, why wouldn't I be the best on Sunday when I step out on that field? And I think when I step on the field, it gives me unbelievable confidence knowing that I did all the work already. Now it's just out here. This is, this is, uh, this is just a show now. I, I put all the hard work in earlier in the week. I know my, I know the opponent I'm playing against. I know my plays. I know the technique I'm going to use. I know the catch. I have the ability to make the tough catches. I've done all of this all week. Now let's go out there and execute and have fun. And so I'm almost free. It's like I'm unshackled once I get out there. So I, I'm a, I'm an artist with a blank canvas and a bunch of paint. Now let's 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 go to work. That's what I feel like. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, uh, speaking of the Super Bowl, I understand you were the first player to have your dad be in the press box, actually covering you as a sports writer in, in the game. How did that make you feel? Well, I know my dad um, really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, seeing my dad's covered every single Super Bowl since Super Bowl, uh, I think, six. 
He's been every single one. I know how much um, pride he takes in going to the Super Bowl and covering it and, you know, to be able to be there with me. Couldn't cheer for me up there in the press box because you have to stay uh, neutral. But I know that he was pulling for me and uh, to know that that I had that support up there, it meant, it meant a great deal to me. Yeah. Larry, you're, you're obviously very high profile. And with that profile, you know, people are always watching you. You come under scrutiny. Was, was there ever a time when you, you felt like you were unfairly criticized for what you do? And how did you handle that with the media? Well, you know, I, Mr. Novak, I, I, I don't do myself any disservices. I don't read any material on myself. I, I, I don't watch the local news. You know, I don't do any of that. Because I think when you do, you take too much in. Um, when things are going well and you take it too personal when things are going bad. And I just like to keep myself. I don't want to walk into the locker room and have an interview with a reporter that I know said something negative about me or told me I, I shouldn't be there anymore or I'm making too much money. Any of those things that would make me feel negative towards that person, I don't want those feelings because he's he's been objective. He's doing his job. I need to focus on my job. And I think too many of the young people, they're so caught up in the social media and what this person said and what it... What did, what did Harry from Vermont say about that like, game? Why, why does it matter what Harry from Vermont says about your game? Um, only people that should matter are your teammates, your coaches, the people that are in the locker room with you. That's Those are the opinions of the people that should matter to you. And I think too much, just, just too much noise and too many distractions around guys now. And I try to make sure I control those distractions. And I, and I can by not subjecting myself to the hearsay of people that don't matter to what we're trying to accomplish. You've said that no matter what obstacles you face, be a finisher. Oh, I yeah. love that. Be a finisher. Describe a time when you had to really live that out. Well, the, the biggest and earliest test for me was, um, you know, losing my mother as a freshman in college. And uh, my mother was in a, a seven-year battle with breast cancer, and she fought valiantly for, for years, um, went in remission twice and, and came back stronger every time. And my mother never once complained. I never heard her say, why, Laura, why did this happen to me? Or this is so unfair. She never, she never did that. And, um, I remember my mom going to chemotherapy, coming home, throwing up in the car, getting us ready to go to football practice, sitting out there in the cold, supporting us every time. And, and like, that just showed me, you know, so much, you know, when I was, when I was seeing that and, you know, so whenever I have a sprained ankle or something's bothering me, I just look back and think about what my mom went through and, and how tough she was and how she always pushed through and supported us no matter what. You know, it makes me think that, you know, I can get through anything. And um, my mom always was was one of those people that always talked about that. And, um, you know, I remember after she passed away, it was, my, it was in the springtime, you know, I was going through spring ball and I contemplated you know, not playing ball anymore. I just thought back to all the things that she stood for and anything that you start, you finish, no matter what what it is. If you give a man your word, you always commit to it. You do what you say you're going to do. Um, you you have to hold true to those values. And, you know, I never um, waver from those things. And, you know, she wanted me to finish my college education. I left as a sophomore and it took me uh, eight years after I finished to be able to finally get my my college degree done but you know those are the type of things that I that, that she taught us as young as young people and that still resonate to me you know I, I I remember reading a great article that you wrote and I circulated to to my friends and it, it was all about you know the nation needs today what sports teaches you explain that well I think sports teaches us so many wonderful things in life Mr. Novak um 
you know, I feel like there's the country can be divided at times, you know, politically, racially. There's so many things that that can pull us apart at the seams. And the one thing I do love about sports, you look up in that crowd and you see African-Americans sitting with Jewish people and you see Jewish people sitting with uh, Protestants and you see Protestants sitting with Arabs. And, I mean, it's just and nobody's worried about what they look like or or what God they they they, they serve. All they're looking at is. Who's playing on the field? What's the score? Can they make a comeback? Can this guy make the basket? Can this guy make the catch? You think he can get on base? And and it, for a moment, it brings us all together. And that's what I love so much about sports um, and, and in business. And I see there's there's so many trials and tribulations you go through. And in sports, it's up and down, ebb and flows, deficits overcome. And, you know, guys get hurt. They come back. You know, Willis Reed out of, out of the locker room to come back and help your team prevail. There's so many triumphant stories and you know in businesses it's, it's, it's I think it's the same way I mean there's there's years of just stock is plummeting you know for for reasons then it's soaring the next year I mean it's it's just all these ups and downs and um that's why I just, I just love sports and what it teaches you about life you just never you never you never give up on it you always have to see there's a possibility for a comeback and you get a cohesiveness with the team that the nation would, yeah, would yeah, need absolutely you know? absolutely Larry, let's move to your business interests. What, what are your business interests outside of football now? Well, I, I'm involved in a, a couple different things. Um, you know, I've just recently become a minority owner of the Phoenix Suns. Um, I'm in the restaurant groups, um, hospitality businesses, uh, travel company. You know, so I have a, a plethora of outside interests that I that I have. And, you know, football is my main interest but right now, but I had to do a good job of kind of um, opening my eyes and, and learning about life after ball. And I think I've got off to a pretty decent start and surrounded myself with some really intelligent people that I could learn from and kind of run things by and bounce ideas off of. And, um, you know, I think I'm in my infancy stage as a businessman, but every single day is an opportunity for me to learn. Do you have a business leader who's kind of taken you underneath his wing and, and and really helped you outside of sport? I have I have quite a few uh, guys who who have helped me along the way, but I would say probably um, the guy on the day to day that that helps me the most is uh, Robert Sarver. He's uh he's the the majority owner of the Phoenix Suns. He started Western Alliance Banks, and is a you know great real estate banking man and um you know he's been providing a, a great deal of uh knowledge and understanding to me over the years and you know it's really helped me kind of scrub through deals and things to look for and things to avoid and um just you know some great things uh, that I'll always be able to utilize that's fantastic it's great to have somebody yeah, like that it is you know Larry when you when you live a life of celebrity you know your your endorsements can be very lucrative mm-hmm. um Tell us about the Larry Fitzgerald brand. You know, what does it stand for? And how do you decide who you're going to partner with? Well, I think it's important, you know, because there's a lot of opportunities that present themselves. But I think you have to be able to be with companies who match your authenticity, right? And I've passed up on numerous deals that were very lucrative but didn't align with with, with me personally. And I've been very... Uh, selective in the way I align myself uh, with companies and the, the the companies that I really you know have had the longest standing relationship with the Nikes and and Visas and uh, Bridge Bridgestones and, um, and 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 companies like that. Bose, um, you know, their leadership is fantastic. The men that run those companies 
are, uh, you know, of the highest moral compass. And, you know, I've, I've learned from those men um, and also, you know, the, the values that those companies impart. And, you know, so, I mean, I'm always trying to pick relationships that, you know, um, that I can learn from as well. You know, I follow you on Twitter at one of 2.2 million <laughs> followers, you know, so I, you know, but what guidance can, can you give to, to leaders on, on how to use social media? And, and by the way, I've looked at your website. It's spectacular. I mean, it's so professional and, and you know, uh, what's your strategy there? <laughs> well, I don't know if I per se have a strategy, but I, I try to use social media as an, as an uplifting way uh, to get my message across. I don't really try to get into any negativity or, or hearsay. I'm not into, you know, all of the nonsense. Is more What's the so. Larry Fitzgerald message that you want to get across? Well, it's just positivity. Um, I think, I think that there can't be enough said about being positive and having a, a, a mindset that is open to, to growth. And I think a lot of young people I see they're they're so caught up in more of the the negativity on social media, the, the things that are not necessarily good. And I try to stay positive. I try to shed light on people that are doing good things and are serving their communities and uh, making a difference in the lives of others. And so that's really where I try to stay in my in my zone with social media. That's great. You said that you have to believe in your ability on the good days and in the bad days. Was there ever, you know, as an athlete, I'm sure you had those moments, but as you move into business, you're probably in more foreign territory, mm-hmm. you know, to a certain extent, but you're getting better and better at it and you're learning. Have you ever struggled believing in your abilities in the world of business or has that just come kind of naturally for you? Oh, yeah, it's definitely been a struggle. How'd you overcome it? Well, I was thinking I'm still trying to overcome it. You know, when I'm sitting in these meetings and sitting in board meetings and things of that nature, I'm sometimes in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what can I actually bring? You know, all I've done is catch a football over the last 25 years. You know, how how can I and what I've experienced be applicable to what they're going through in here? And as I've gotten more comfortable and more knowledgeable, I think there's a lot of things that I can bring to the table. Um, my insight is a little different than most of the people sitting around the table. Um, and and I know that I can bring value. And so I think my confidence has, has definitely grown from when I first started really taking a, a greater step to be more of a businessman. And the more knowledge that I've acquired, you know, going, studying, going to different business programs and, and getting a better acumen, I think I've become much more confident in uh, what I know and how I can convey my messages. Did you have a defining moment where you said, you know, just like in sports where you said, hey, I think I can actually be a player, you know, you know have you had that defining moment in business where you say, hey, look, I really belong in this world? Yeah, so I, I was taking some executive business courses at, at Harvard last year and I was around some of the most bright minds you could ever imagine and I'm sitting there and I'm I'm highly intimidated and I and I've been playing in big games my entire life and I've never been that intimidated and I remember about the second day I was like you know what I I can present something I I can bring things to the table here and there were some points I was making that nobody else brought up and you know so I really started to have some more confidence that I, I can hold my own in that in that in that situation and, and in that form and, and it's all about just like sports you have to have that belief in your ability you have to have that belief that you you can do and you can achieve and you can accomplish what you set your mind to and I started to get a little bit more confidence after that last year you know almost every leader Larry has an epic fail you know, what was your 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 biggest career or business failure and what'd you learn from it? Uh, my biggest fail definitely would, I would say, um, I haven't had any 
I haven't had any fails really in business. I haven't gotten that in depth in it, but in sports, it would be the Super Bowl losing, losing that. And, uh, you know, it was still something, you know, it happened 11 years ago and it still is like, it's fresh in my mind to things that I would have done different, you know, how I would have called this play or the way I would have executed that. You know, sometimes it, it, it still comes back in my mind, especially during this time of the year when it's around the Super Bowl. And, um, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, the opportunity, you know, may not ever present itself again, it, 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 it definitely weighs on you pretty heavy. How do you how do you work through that? Because we all have those those failures. You know, you had to pick yourself up and, mm-hmm. you know. But it's still with you. Oh, it de- it definitely is still with me, and I always say, you know, if I if I get another opportunity to do it again, I'm going to do it different this time. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a prepare harder. I'm going to do something, you know, better and 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 uh, and make sure that I'm not on that losing side again. And I'm going to make sure my teammates understand the importance and that this opportunity doesn't come that often and it may not ever come again. And so all these things that I've kind of stored in the back of my mind, um, you know, to prepare myself for it when that opportunity comes again. So on a more, you know, uplifting side, what, what would you see as your biggest business or career success and what'd you learn from it? I would say I've always dreamed of being able to have, you know, be able to get into the sports world. And so being able to get into the NBA, which I've always followed and, and admired and really, you know, enjoy watching the game, to be able to get into the business side of it and be able to learn about the backside of business uh, in the sports world, I think is really exciting for me. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the future and, um, you know, getting gaining some more experience and knowledge in that field. Yeah. You know, leadership is all about taking people from me to we. Nothing big happens by yourself. What What do you think would be your greatest example of taking people with you? Yeah, I think a lot of guys, you know, especially my younger teammates, they always asking me about, you know, my community work and, you know, how did I get started? And that really, really makes me happy because, you know, at the end of the day, people will forget about how many catches you had and how many touchdowns and all of the things that really don't matter. But People never forget how you how you make them feel. And when you're out there in the community and you're serving and you see these young people so happy about getting, you know, Christmas shopping that you took them to or new computer labs in their schools or clothes drives or backpack things that you've done for, for different people or, or women being thankful for, you know, providing medicines for them to deal with their HIV or, or AIDS, um, you know, things like that that really make a profound impact on you. And to see the young people kind of recognize you for those type of things, I think makes me makes me really, really happy that I'm, you know, working in the right direction. You know, I, I always love watching you hand the ball to the referee or a teammate after you score. There's no annex, uh, no Captain America <laughs> celebrations. You know, why do you do that? Well, I, you know, I've always been a big fan of Barry Sanders, and I remember watching him up close and personal, and he never made a show. He he acted like he had been there before, and I always try to act like, you know, this is something that I'm, I'm accustomed to doing. I've done it a few times, and I don't want to make a scene. That's, that's, that's kind of my, my thought process in it. <laughs> this is all fun, but I want to have a little more fun and do a lightning round of rapid-fire questions and answers, okay. okay? So what leader do you admire most and why? I got a chance to play golf with President Obama last year, and, you know, second time I got a chance to meet him, and I just really admired, you know, his intelligence, his, his ability to kind of know everything that's going on in the world, you know, from sports to business to everything. Um, and, and I really, I really enjoyed that. What three words best describe you and why? I would say tenacity, uh, commitment, and uh, work ethic. 
What's your biggest pet peeve? Um, having a dirty house. <laughs> <laughs> if you could trade places for a day with one person, who would it be and why? Uh, does it have to be fictional? It can be anybody you want. I'll say Iron Man. Iron Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why Iron Man? Besides uh, the obvious, you already you're a physical Iron Man no, right now. I, I, I loved him because he he has a big nice crib in Malibu with the fancy cars and the and the and the cool jets. But then he goes out and saves the world. He <laughs> makes a difference. You know? <laughs> uh, share a random fact about you that few people know. I'm an avid chess player. Great. You know, that's fun. Now, and now I want to shift to something that you've already talked a little bit about. And, and, and I want to talk about your philanthropy. You've visited over 100 countries and done mission trips in Africa, India, Thailand, Philippines. What's your biggest insight from these experiences? Well, that no matter where I've gone in the world, um, when you extend courtesy to people, they're appreciative. It doesn't matter where they're from, what their economical uh, backgrounds are. When you do good for people, they appreciate you. And I think that's the one thing that I've learned through all my travels in humanity is, you know, love is love. And just just love your fellow man. You know, you've talked about the First Down Fund and your foundation work there. Uh, what's next for that? Well, I'm going to continue to keep growing it. You know, we do two events every year. We do a celebrity softball event usually in late April. And then in late August, I do a, a sit-down um, celebrity waiter event. In between the two of those, we usually race between eight hundred to a million two a year doing both of those events, and and it's be able to, to help me fund all of the, the initiatives that I have around the country and and, and reading literacy and uh, after school programs for children. And I just hope I can continue to do that for the rest of my life because it brings me a lot of joy. You know, Larry, you had the privilege of being a great friend of the, of the late Senator McCain. And you actually spoke at his memorial service. What was the most important thing that he taught you? Well, the way he treated people, I'll never forget one of the times I went out to visit him in, in Washington, D.C. We flew home together. And like most senators, he wasn't flying private. He, he was on a, a U.S. air flight, um, America West, actually, which is the hub was in Phoenix. And we flew back. And every single person, it took us probably 30 minutes to get from the plane just to get the baggage claim because every single person that wanted a picture and wanted to talk to him, he made time for him, every single person. And it just showed me a lot about his humility and uh, what it meant for him to be a man of service and, uh, you know, uh, getting to know him and, and his wife, Cindy, and, and his family. Um, it wasn't an act. That's That 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 was who he was as, as a human being. And I um, I look back on my relationship with, with Senator McCain as one of the, the better, most true um, relationships I've had. And I was so blessed and fortunate to be able to call him a friend. You know, you've had so much public recognition and you re received so many awards, you know, all kinds of awards. I couldn't <laughs> list them all. You know, what was the most emotional recognition you've received and why? I would say the Water Paid Man of the Year award was definitely the most humbling that I've ever received because, um, you know, getting a chance to meet Mr. Peyton's wife and uh, Connie and, and, his, and his children, Brittany and, and Jared, and to see what they stood for and uh, to learn about his story and how he was uh, such a uh, humble servant and to be able to have an award that um, embodies everything that he stood for, it meant a great deal to me. Um, you know, we all fall short of his his 
um, his greatness, but, you know, we can all aspire to do it. And, um, you know, I think that's definitely the, the one that really sticks out to me. You know, you have two sons and, and, and you've said you're committed to be an example of what it means to be a man. What does that mean to you? Well, you know, my, my father, you know, imparted some great, um, examples for us, you know, when things were, were going good and things weren't going so good, he never wavered from how he treated my mother and how he respected us, how we respected other people and just watching him on a daily basis, how he conducted himself and how he worked, you know, no matter what he had to do to put food on the table and put clothes on our backs, pay for our tuition, he did it and he did it with class and grace and, uh, there's no better example than just being able to watch your father go about his work. And I hope my sons are able to watch me from a distance and, and see, you know, how important it is to do things, um, you know, obviously to provide for them, but to do it the right way. You know, we're about to wrap this up, Larry, because uh, I've got to whip up on you a little bit today. But what are three bits of advice you'd give to aspiring leaders? I would say uh, commit to learning about the people you're around. You know, take take time to get to know what makes them who they are, um, because when you invest in people, they'll take the time to invest in you. Um, I would say, um, be honest always. There's not always going. Life is not always going to be peachy. Things are not always going to be perfect. It's not going to be, hey, Mr. Novak, we want to give you a ten percent raise every year. That's not in reality. But if you're honest with people all the time, um, I think they will appreciate it, and and they will they will go the extra mile for you. Um, and then I would I would say just be kind. Be, there's just there's no there's nothing wrong with just being kind to people, and you know people will respect that just about you too if you if you if you're kind and you treat people well. We've joked a little bit about it about your golf. <laughs> you know, and I know you're an avid golfer, and you've just recently picked it up, and you've really become very good in a hurry. You've won the AT and T Pro Am already. You know, you're, you're already you know just getting all these this hardware. You know, how'd you get into golf, and and what has it taught you so far about yourself? Well, one of my former teammates, Andre Roberts, who actually played for the Buffalo Bills, the one that got me into golf seven years ago. We were at practice, and he was like, "Man, Fitz, you sitting around, you're not doing anything. You you might as well just come out here and and play some golf." So he drugged me out to this. This celebrity, this celebrity tournament, and I played terribly because I never played before. And but I hit a couple shots that felt great, right? You know, it just <laughs> it's a few. I was like, man, you know, nothing like a compressed golf ball. You know, you know, you know the feeling. And I got it, and and I was like, man, I, I gotta, I gotta have this. And and I just committed to it. I started hitting balls every day, and and I started getting better, and I saw the progress. And, and I remember you start off like, man, if I could just break a hundred, right? And then it's just. If I could just, if I could just break ninety, you know, if I could just break eighty, you know, and it, and I realized that now that I, that, that I shoot the seventies often, now all I want to do is shoot in the sixties, you know, yeah. I, and, and, that, and that, it never changes. You're always in pursuit of greatness and always chasing it. But the greatest thing about golf is you get a chance to be able to really meet some unbelievable people. You get a chance to learn. Um, you know about what makes a man tick. I I think golf is the best four-hour interview you can ever have. You you see a man's temperament. You you see you know if that person is honest. You know if they have integrity. You know how they how they handle prosperity. How they handle defeat. You know all of these things you learn by playing golf in four hours. And um, not to mention you know it's something that you can never beat. Now you, you, if you're the best football team, you get a trophy and you win the Super Bowl. But golf is fleeting. You know today. You might shoot a 75. Tomorrow, you can shoot 95. It's, there's nothing that stays the same. And I think that that kind of like k- 
carrot that you'll never be able to beat the game, I think, keeps you hungry trying to chase it. You know, I want to close with a quote from you that I loved, which is, until the day we are no longer left on this earth, we are not yet finished. There's more to be done, more to live for. There's still a race yet to be run. What's next for Larry Fitzgerald? You know, I want to continue to do some great work with my foundation to serve uh, the people that I've been serving. I want to be a good example for my for my sons. And, uh, you know, I just want to be an a, a example for young people that, that come up behind me that, um, uh, you know, that are aspiring to do whatever they want to do. And it doesn't matter if it's playing sports or being doctors or lawyers, you know, just putting yourself in a position to, to be successful by working hard at it. Well, Larry, I want to thank you so much for, for being with me today. And I also want to tell you just how much you've inspired me. You know, your example, the way you live your life, the way you give to others, including me and all our listeners, when you've taken the time to share, I, I think it's such a great example. You truly walk the talk. And thanks for being Larry Fitzgerald. Thank you, Mr. Stomach. I appreciate it. It's an honor being on with you. Well, I think you'll agree, Larry Fitzgerald is one class act. He's one of the most respected athletes out there, and he has earned it. He's the kind of person you just instantly look up to and you want to follow, even if he wasn't that person giving the big speech or calling the plays in the huddle. And now it's time for my favorite part of these episodes, where I give you a little personal coaching so that you can develop into a better leader. This week, as a part of your weekly personal development plan, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the person in your life who leads by example. And I want you to just send them a note of encouragement this week. Point out what you specifically appreciate about them. We need to recognize their kind of quiet excellence when we see it. And remember, regardless of your title or role, true leadership is earned. When you set an example of excellence and integrity, people will follow you because you've earned their respect. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders lead by example. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply in your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.